Let's open our Bibles this morning for an opening text to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'd like to continue teaching you that the Bible that you hold in your hands was written by God. Now, I was raised in a Christian home, as I told you before, and I've told you while studying this subject, so I've always assumed the Bible to be God's Word. But the Bible doesn't want us to assume that His Word was written by God. The Bible wants us to prove it. The Bible tells us to prove it. God does not want us to assume even Christianity as the true religion were to prove it. And so we look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and we see this instruction given to us by the Apostle as he concludes this first epistle to the Thessalonians. He lists numerous duties in the last few verses and he says in the 21st verse, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Now, there's a lot of things being said today in the last month, and it's what's caused me to preach this sermon and series of sermons to you, that the Koran is an acceptable holy book, that the Koran has many good and noble things to say, that it's also a religious book on the same level as the Bible, and it isn't at all. Amen. The, the Koran is no better than the novels that you can buy at Walmart. And it's a whole lot more deceptive and dangerous because it goes under the name of a holy book. But it has no, it is no comparison to the Bible. And we have to be convinced of that because the Bible tells us to prove all things. And I want to lift the word of God up to you because God wants it lifted up. In Psalm 138 and verse 2, he says that he's exalted his name. He's exalted his word above all his name. Now we know that the name of God is lifted up. We know that the name of God is something we are never to take in vain. And yet he's lifted his word above all his name. And so he wants us to understand what a precious gift we have in the Bible. And you hold it in your laps. What a blessing. We have it so readily available, we can buy it for about two minutes labor. My wife told me a couple of weeks ago that the dollar store in Greenville was selling King James Bibles whole King James Bibles for a dollar. I know that I mentioned that to Brother Leon. We both looked at each other and got a gleam in our eye that maybe we needed another case of them sitting around someplace in case they ever tried to take them away from us. And that's the right spirit that a man ought to have about the Word of God, that if they were to take it away from us, we'd have some extras. We have it so readily available, but do we know how precious it is? Do we rejoice at it? as one that findeth great spoil. Now we read that this morning. The words are easy to read, but are they true reflections of our hearts and our attitude in life toward the Bible? I see so many of them open in your laps. I have so many at home. We have them online now. We have them in Palm Pilots. You can take it anywhere. You can find any verse you need. You can do word searches. You can turn it inside out. But do we have it lifted up? the way that it ought to be lifted up, and have we proven it to be written by God, and do we know that, and can we establish that to others, and can we show our children what a gift they have? I have preached to you 12 points that prove that the Bible was written by God. And so we come to number 13 this morning. Did you know that the more that you consider this subject, the weight of your Bible duties becomes greater and greater? And it doesn't become an onerous weight. It doesn't become an unpleasant burden. It becomes a blessed privilege because we realize more and more as we're brought to reflect upon it that the Bible was written by God and therefore every word in it, whatever subject it addresses, is precious indeed and ought to be heeded with our utmost attention. Amen. Because God wrote it. Prove all things. See, we can start by assuming the Bible to be the Word of God, and then we can preach it as we usually preach it. But that is not well, that is not how Christianity is to be established. We establish it by proving that the Bible itself was written by God. The apostles didn't have to do it, and neither did Moses have to do it, because he had the ability to perform miraculous signs and wonders. Right. So when they went into a town, they didn't worry about it. They didn't ever try to convince anyone of the validity of the Old Testament scriptures, the only people they wanted to talk to were those who already believed it. 
And if you didn't believe it, if you were such a barbarian that you had never heard of the Jewish scriptures, then they would convince you of their integrity by miraculous signs and wonders. And if they had healed your uncle or raised your aunt from the dead, you had a strong desire to believe what they had to say. True. We don't have that power. And so we preach the word of God and we show that the Bible was written by God indeed. The point that I want to begin with this morning is the fact that the Bible can be shown to be the word of God by its morality. Now, when I say that word, some of you may think, what a boring point compared to last Sunday morning. Oh, last Sunday morning was so much more exciting when he showed us the scientific internal evidence of the Bible. I love this one. Amen. Of several of the 22 that I'm going to give you, I love the morality of the Bible. Right. Because the morality that is taught in the pages of the book you hold in your laps is unlike the morality of any other book. Amen. And by morality, I mean the holiness and righteousness that it prescribes for how men are to live with one another in this right. world. Amen. Right. It is at a level that cannot be touched by any other holy book. And when I say holy book, I use a small h and a small b simply to give them a little bit in the way of an assumption. It's a false assumption because there's only one book that is truly holy. Amen. And why do we call it the Holy Bible? Because it's written by the Holy God right. and everything that it teaches is unadulterated holiness. Right. I want to show you that there is within the Bible such a degree of morality that it could only have been written by God. Let me, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Let me make a comparison with the Koran. Deuteronomy chapter 24. The Koran in Surah 2, 230, requires a divorced woman who has a desire to get back with her husband, who wants to reconcile and get back with her husband, in order for a divorced woman to get back with her husband, she must go out and marry another man, consummate that marriage, and then divorce that second husband before she can come back to the first husband. That is Surah number 2, the 230th verse. Now, what does the Bible have to say? And let's just compare and see which one was written by God. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house... Or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Now you look at these two options we have. We've got two books. They're both claiming to be the a holy book of a religion, they're both claiming to be written by God. Well, Allah isn't truly God, but we'll give them that assumption too for the moment that Allah, their moon God, is some sort of a God. He's just the invention of the Arabians who didn't have anything better to do at night but to look up. There weren't street lights. And so they saw the crescent moon. They decided that ought to be their chief deity. And that's why you see on the top of every mosque that little curved crescent moon because that is Allah. Allah is the greatest. That is their God. That's why when Christians and Jews wouldn't convert fast enough, they pulled out their swords that were called scimitars, which were crescent moons, and they evangelized at the point of the sword. Right. It's not a peaceful religion. When you hear that coming from our government, it's either being said out of ignorance or out of desperate political need to keep peace. Which, which God wrote your book? The one that tells a woman that when she's been separated from her husband in order to reconcile and get back with that husband, she needs to go out and marry another man and consummate it and then divorce that man in order to get back with the first one. Now, that's what the Koran would call holiness. But the Bible says that that is an abomination. 
And when we think about women, and we understand by nature that God has given us the loyalty that a woman ought to have to her husband, and that women floating around from man to man, there's nothing noble, holy, or righteous about it at all. Right. That's why there have been no nations on the history of, in the history of this earth that have pla- practiced polyandry, which is multiple husbands for one woman, except the darkest, basest tribes of Africa. Now, polygamy's been a problem because God made the woman for the man. The Bible teaches that. And even some of God's men got into trouble with that particular error. But I want you to see that there's a comparison that we have to make. And within the Bible, there is such a level of holiness. God says that once a woman has left her first husband and she's been with another man, she cannot come back to the first one because that would create an abomination because she's defiled by that second one. There's no way that she can come back to the first one. There would be ungodly comparisons made between men that are to be unheard of in the nation of Israel. Look at Jeremiah chapter 3. This is not a weak point simply made in Deuteronomy because God wants to show you how great his love was for Israel that when they had gone away and married another husband he would take them back which shows how much God loved Israel Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 1 they say if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's shall he return unto her again Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But, that ha- but thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, saith the Lord. Notice, here's a little commentary being made on Deuteronomy 24. A nation is going to be greatly polluted that allows a woman, when she's left her first husband, to go to a second, then to return to the first. That that's a polluted land. And the Lord's point here is not to be teaching on divorce and remarriage. It's to be teaching that he loved Israel so much that he would take her back even though she had committed adultery spiritually with many lovers. And that's the Lord's precious love for his church. Even when she forsakes him and goes after another lover, he is willing to take her back. The point is, which morality speaks of God? Which one looks like God wrote it? Which one has the appearance of an elevated sense of morality or one that would degrade a nation and show that it is perverse in its reasoning. One is holy and righteous, and one is not. Listen, sisters, the Quran and the Sunnah of the Arabians and Islam reduces women to slaves. If there's anyone in this nation praying for the, that should be praying for the overthrow of Islam, it ought to be the women. Right. No women in the history of the world have ever enjoyed such a protected, exalted status as Christian women that participate in a Christian nation and Christian churches where the Bible is preached. No women ever. You pick your nation, you pick your culture, and I'll show you how women were degraded. When the Bible is preached, women are protected and they're exalted. They are defended by the Lord God who made them. They have their place and their purpose and their role and purpose is clearly laid out in the Bible. But there's no degradation for a woman to serve her husband. Every man gets up and goes to work every morning and serves his master. There's no degradation in being a great employee. Every pastor had better be willing to serve every member of his church, and there's no degradation in being a servant. I'm thankful that Jesus Christ didn't balk at being submissive. He said he didn't come to be ministered unto. He came to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Women ought not to chafe when they hear about submission in the Word of God. They ought to be thankful because that same Bible that teaches submission teaches husbands how they better take care of them. And that is a precious defense for women. And there's such a difference between the Koran. You know, there's a limit in the Koran. Your husband can only have four wives. Isn't that comforting? No women have ever enjoyed such liberties and protection as living in a Christian nation where Bible Christianity has been preached because it frees and delivers women. Think about the Old Testament with me for a minute. When was the Old Testament written? Where was it written? What kind of laws existed around the Old Testament? What kind of religions were being practiced while God was giving his word to Moses? While Moses was penning down the first books of the Bible, what kind of holiness was being practiced in Egypt? 
What kind of morality was being practiced by the Canaanites? Abominations. When you go to Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, and you read about incest, and you read about sodomy, and you read about bestiality, and you read about necrophilia, and all sorts of other perversions, that was the religion of the nations around Israel. How in the world could five books like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy come into existence in the middle of all that? Right, God. God wrote them. Amen. The stuff that was going on around Moses, how did Moses get such ideas that he penned down in those first five books of the Bible? God gave them to him. He was so contrary to current opinion. Current opinion not only endorsed the sins that I just listed, and I'm a, not only did it endorse them, they, those sins were part of religious worship. Right. That's what they did in those temples of the Canaanites. And God said, that land is going to spew them out. He couldn't stand the Canaanites. Whenever you read your Old Testament and you wonder, the God that I know and that I see in Scripture, why did He want every man, woman, and child, every suckling, every animal, every kitty cat, and every cattle killed? Why? Because they were so wicked, they had corrupted the land and they were abominable before Him. And He said if the Israelites didn't kill them, the land itself would vomit them out. That was the religion going on around him. And what do we get? The first five books of the Bible. What do those books tell us? Careful details about loving your wife and taking care of your wife and spending the first year of your marriage, a one-year honeymoon. Listen, does that sound like good morality to you? Deuteronomy 24 and verse 5 teaches a one-year honeymoon. It says, when a man hath taken a new wife, let him not be charged with war nor with business, but let him stay at home one year to cheer up his wife. Amen. which he hath taken. Now, does that sound like a Canaanite? What a difference in the Word of God. Who made the difference but the Lord God that gave us this book? They can say the Koran was written by God. They can pull forth other writings of men and say that they're written by God. But we have a book that is superior by the morality that it teaches. Right. What does the Bible say about sodomites? Put them to death. What does the Bible say about whores? Put them to death. What does the Bible say about adulterers and adulteresses? Put them to death. What does the Bible say about incest? Put them to death. What does the Bible say about bestiality? Put them to death. You know, and if those laws were practiced, what a glorious place a nation would be. We come close in the past in this nation, and so we have a great nation with many liberties and freedoms and morality. You compare our nation to the other nations of the earth, and we have a greater degree of morality in this nation even yet because of the remaining influences of the laws that were written based on scripture, moral, scriptural morality. Right. God wrote the Bible. To me, it's amazing to go and consider that out of all that filth and degradation, out came the first five books of the Bible. So contrary, so contrary to the, to the nations around Israel. What about the New Testament? What about the New Testament? When was it written? Was it written in the middle of a moral revival? Or was it written in the midst of the Greco-Roman world in which infanticide, that means if your baby was born and you hadn't killed it before it was born, you were able to kill it after it was born. In, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's murder in both cases. They practiced abortion. They practiced infanticide. And if you had a child and you couldn't actually kill it, kill it you could just desert it. And it was accepted behavior in the Greco-Roman world, just as an example, but not Christianity. How did the New Testament get written in a world worshiping pagan idols and deities? I mean, there were so many idols in Athens that when Paul got there, his spirit was stirred within him. As he looked around, he said the city was wholly given to idolatry. And out comes the morality of one God. And that one God preserves life and teaches that children are a blessing from God and they're to be taught and brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that if parents haven't brought up children when they are old, they don't deserve to be taken care of. First Timothy chapter 5. If a widow has not brought up children and done it well, she does not deserve the maintenance of the church. There it is in the New Testament. The cities were so wicked that Corinth coined a verb. 
when you, when you saw someone that was incredibly lascivious and amoral, you would describe them as having been Corinthianized because they were acting like the inhabitants of Corinth, which was such a city given over to licentiousness and sensual pleasures and luxury that it was a horrible place. That's why when we look into 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that some of the members at Corinth had been sodomites. Right. But they'd been converted, but they'd been sanctified, but they had been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. But it was a horrible place, and out of that comes an epistle like 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that says your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And that verse isn't there to condemn cigarette smoking. That verse is there condemning very clearly in the context of taking your body and joining it to a harlot and committing fornication. Amen. In the middle of Corinth. Right. Where did a man get such conviction about sexual sins that we read about them in 1 Corinthians. God wrote the Bible. And we know that from the level of its morality. And what kind of men wrote this high standard of morality? In many cases it was fishermen in the New Testament, farmers in the Old Testament that wrote this high level of morality. They weren't philosophical speculators trying to think up some better way to do things. God gave it to men and they wrote it down for us, and we have in this book a standard of morality that is so high, it is what has made America great. Right. right. Because for the most part, the morality of this book has been practiced here. Now we're departing from it. Our nation now considers its entertainment sins that this Bible would say deserve death. Romans chapter 1 and verse 32 says, Of our nation who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Amen. We have a whole entertainment industry built on the sins that this Bible condemns. And so we shouldn't be surprised when God lifts his hands of protection and we see what happened on September 11th. And until this nation repents, more of it's coming. You cannot mock God forever. Be not deceived. God is not mocked whatsoever, and I corrupt it for a moment, whatsoever a nation soweth, that nation is going to reap it. May God have mercy upon us. We need to pray for our nation and continue to do so. Amen. Simply compare the morality of our nation with the morality of any other nation. You see the effect that the Bible has had. The Bible makes men strong and gentle leaders. Can you be strong and gentle at the same time? Yes. It's the only way to truly be either. A man who isn't gentle isn't strong at all because it means he can't control himself. The Bible creates and makes men strong but gentle leaders. Women are protected and honored. The old are provided for and the young are loved and instructed. Very different from many places in the world. And it's because the Bible teaches us those things. You know, it would take us a complete study of the Bible law for us to fully appreciate this point. We'd have to go through all the books of Moses. We'd have to go through the book of Proverbs and see all the morality that God's Word teaches. We only want to look at a few examples because I've mentioned some of these under the point of the wisdom that's in God's Word. Right now, we live in the most advanced society the world has ever seen, and I use advanced in the way that they use it. We have advanced so far in education and technological improvements in our lives, and yet our morality is now causing us severe problems in our nation because we have left the Bible. Right. Now, if we are the most advanced society the world has ever seen and we're suffering problems because of a declining morality, then this Bible must be holding a standard that exceeds the most advanced society in the history of the world. Amen. Because God wrote it. Amen. And we can see it in its morality. Look at Luke chapter 6. Now, Warm those fingers up because I want to look at a few places in the Bible to show you a morality that is so high and lofty that it proves the Bible was written by God. And, and it, the, the more you accept this and the more you believe this and the more you get excited about this, when you find verses that are directly applied to your life, there's a greater desire to obey them. Because the Bible is such a lofty standard of morality, and when it's been followed, people have been so blessed with liberty, freedom, pleasure, and prosperity that when we find a verse addressed to us, we ought to rejoice as one that findeth great spoil. Right. Here is one more thing that the holy, wise God has given me in the way of wisdom that if I will do it, I will not only please Him, 
but I will realize the reward also. Amen. I know you've heard it already this previously this weekend. Psalm 19, in the keeping of God's commandments, there is great reward. Not only does keeping God's commandments please him, which we want to do above all else, but in keeping of his commandments, there is great reward. One woman is far better than many women. In spite of what men say, God made one woman for one man, Adam and Eve. And he said that that was his wisdom. He had the residue of the spirit according to Malachi chapter 2, and he could have created anywhere from 2 to 13 trillion. But he created one. And so when we look into God's words, we see the wisdom of that because wherever polygamy has been practiced, there have been enormous problems because there is no reward for someone who leaves God's standard and ideal for man. Every one of those examples in our Bible, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, and the others that had so many wives, they had severe problems because of it. Let's look at Luke chapter 6 and verse 31. Jesus taught, and as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. Now, how in only 15 words can you say something so profoundly moral as that sentence right there? There's no verse like that in the Quran. Go read it. I have, and I'll get, I've, got, I've got hyperlinks for you to go read it. I've got search engines for you so you can find whatever you want to in the Quran. There aren't verses like that. And if there is a verse like that, if there's any verse like Muhammad corrupted it because in his travels as a merchant, he ran into Christians and Jews and stole their better ideas. He wouldn't have thought of a monotheistic religion if he had lived to be 200. He picked monotheism, one God elevated above the rest, because he saw that it worked so well for the Jews and for Christians. So he came back to Mecca and got rid of 359 of them and left the one that had been the chief deity of Arabia all along, Allah the moon god. But Luke 6.31 And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. Is there a better standard of morality? The way we all want to be treated. Who do you love the most? Myself. Thank you, brother. Thank you. My brother Mark, we talked about it this past weekend. He is not afraid to answer my rhetorical questions. Who do you love the most? Jesus told us that we all love ourselves the most. Right. And because of that incredibly depraved principle that flows through our hearts, and he, he was just admitting what's true of all of us. The rest of us are just have a little less boldness in admitting it. But we all love ourselves more than anyone else. Jesus knew that, and so he taught a principle of morality that elevates our conduct to the highest standard that we know within us. The highest motivation possible, treat others the way you want to be treated. That's why Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself because if we could ever love our neighbors like we love ourselves we'd love them with perfect love you know the world says we need to love ourselves more so that we can learn to love our neighbors they are so corrupt they are so perverse anytime you turn on a radio or read some seminar on child training or anything on social problems and you even hear the word self-love self-respect self-esteem you have run into a heretic that's described in second timothy chapter three and he's sneaking around trying to find women that he can lead captive with his foolish doctrine. Men do not need to increase in self-love. We all love ourselves too much. And if we could love others like we love ourselves, we would love them perfectly and the world would be a perfect place. And that's what Jesus taught right here. As you would that men would do to you, do it to them. Because we all want to be treated in this perfect way. We know what perfect treatment is. It's the way we want to be treated. And we're supposed to treat others that way. What a standard of morality, and he gets it across in 15 words. Only God could do that. If I was to write something in school that only had 1% of that wisdom, it'd still take me 15 pages. You all know that from the number of minutes it takes me to preach. Jesus could get it across in a few words. Bless his name. Look at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Here is Jesus Christ teaching that very principle that I just referred to. In verse 27, Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. That is keeping all of God's commandments, to love God supremely, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now watch how men reason, and this is the kind of reasoning you find in all other holy books. 
Watch the reasoning. And he said unto him, Jesus didn't say verse 27. It was answered that way by the lawyer that he's speaking with. Jesus said to that lawyer in verse 28, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? When man's morality is explained, when man is faced with moral choices, he wants to constrain them down to where he can keep them and still take care of himself. And so this lawyer wants to know, yes, the first commandment is to love God, the second commandment is to love my neighbor as myself, but really, who is my neighbor? And he wants to get that neighbor reduced down to his close friends. He wants to get that neighbor reduced down to Jews. He wants to get that neighbor reduced down to church members, the church of Israel. You all understand that, don't you? That is how the natural man works when it comes to morality. And that is how all other holy books work. They are always trying to constrain it down to their little group of people that will love this little group and will call that showing love. So what does Jesus do? He gives us the story of the good Samaritan. Verse 30, Jesus answering said, A certain man went down. I'm not going to take the time to read it all, but the whole story that is given there is not to give us some gospel lesson about oil and wine and two pence given to an innkeeper. None of those details matter. The lesson there is who was in the ditch and who passed down the road. Because Jesus told the whole story to answer one question. He's not giving some spiritual lesson for me to entertain you this morning by telling you what the oil and the wine stand for and the donkey that bore this poor wounded Jew off to the inn. And listen, I've heard some jewels. They can just go on and on and on and on. And it's all made up. Because the whole story is to answer one question. Who is my neighbor? That lawyer wanting to restrict God's commandment of loving your neighbor down to his friends. And so what does Jesus Christ do? He puts a wounded Jew in the ditch and a Samaritan on the road, and the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. Amen. What a story. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ elevates loving your neighbor way up high. Think of what segment of this society in America you love the least or that you resent the most. You know, our family runs several restaurants, and there is a segment of our society that we've come to dislike very, very much. And those of you that were with me this past weekend know what that segment is. I'm not going to say it now because I get taped all the time. But you pick a segment of our society, that segment, if they're in trouble and you're passing by on the road, you stop and you help them. You see them all the way to the innkeeper. You put oil and wine in their wounds and you give money and leave it with the innkeeper, innkeeper for them to be taken care of. And you tell the innkeeper, if it costs more than this, I'll pay when I come and see you the next time. That is loving your neighbor. That's a standard of morality that men don't have. Because when you read the works of men, they always restrict it to their companions and their little group or their little church or their little denomination or whatever it might be. And God just cuts right through all that and makes us, and he actually uses these words, love your enemies. There's only one being that writes books like that. Amen. And it's God. Right. Amen. Look at, you don't even need to turn to it. What other book is there that tells us that tells us to submit completely to a government that is dedicated to our eradication? Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul said the powers that be. What were the powers that were when Paul wrote that? Romans chapter 13, the Roman government. What was the Roman government doing to Christians? Persecuting them. Who cut Paul's head off? The Roman government. And what did Paul teach? Obey the higher powers. Submit yourselves to them. God has ordained them. And if you resist them, you're resisting the ordinance of God. Incredible. There we are. To re- There's a level of morality to submit to the government that is dedicated to annihilating Christians. And so it was for many of the 1,200 years that the, the nations of Europe reigned over Christians. They had to run and hide, but they obeyed the very governments that were trying to destroy them. They were, the, they were model citizens. They were not engaged in revolutions or riots or revolts. 
because the Bible teaches a level of morality that only God could have put in it, because men would not talk about submitting to those that were bent on their destruction. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. When Ingalls and Marx got together and wrote their holy book, and have whole nations followed it almost like a holy book? Oh, yeah. The Communist Manifesto? When they got together and wrote their book, they went after the poor little workers and told them to revolt. It's not fair for someone to be over you and to be making more money than you, so why don't you go kill him and take his property so that you can have it for yourself? Because it doesn't matter that one man's more able than another. Each man ought to get the same amount. Here's what God has to say. It's so different from any writings of men. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. 1 Peter 2.18 Servants be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Notice that. Here is a standard of morality that teaches employees to be subject with all fear, even to obnoxious masters. If you're an employee in a job situation with an obnoxious boss, the Bible tells you what to do. It tells you while you're there to submit with all fear to that obnoxious boss. This is Christianity. And this, by reading those words and understanding how difficult that is to practice and how no man has ever proposed a system like that because they're always talking about throwing off authority that you don't like, this must come from God. Right. Verse 19, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully... When you're suffering wrongfully, do you sue? Christians never sue. I'll worry about the exceptions later. Christians don't sue. You suffer wrongfully. Show me a lawsuit in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20. Christians suffer. And they're willing to suffer. And they're willing to suffer wrongfully, even when it's wrong for them to be suffering, because Jesus Christ suffered for them, being an example that they should follow after. And that's what the rest of that chapter teaches us. But look at the level of morality. A whole communist movement based upon a holy book threw off authority because they didn't think it was fair. But when something happens to us in the job that isn't fair, we are to suffer under it out of conscience toward God because we show our great love of God by enduring pain personally because our conscience tells us God has called me to suffer this way. And that shows our religion. First right. Peter chapter 2. Oh boy. Pure, what's pure religion in the Bible? Pure religion, is it, is it some ceremonial action that you can make in a cathedral? Or is pure religion taking care of widows and the fatherless. Amen. Notice the level of morality. It's not amount of money you give. It's how you treat widows and the fatherless, according to James 1.27. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Since I spent some time in this passages and this passage and other passages like it this past weekend, let me show you a verse that shows how much God protects women and how the morality of the Bible couldn't have been written by a man who was trying to protect his sex. It was written by God protecting his creation and his people. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. God commands in his Bible for husbands to give their wives whatever pleases their wives. Incredible text. And look at it, puts the husband's duty first. These things I taught in the last 48 hours. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. Due benevolence is giving her whatever she wants or needs in the intimate aspects of marriage. And the husband's to give it, and it's a commandment. You know, there's no male chauvinistic pig behind the writing of the Bible, even though that's what we're accused of being when we preach that the wife ought to submit. And that the woman was made for the man and not the man for the woman. Those are true statements of the Bible. But that's just the order of God's creation and the order of authority that he's established. But look at how he protects the one under authority. And he puts the man bound to give to the wife whatever she wants and needs. It's due her. It's his benevolence that he must give her. It's a commandment. 1 Corinthians 7.3 The Bible tells children that they ought to submit and obey their parents. And yet it goes right on the next verse and say, Fathers, 
Fathers, I know you're big and strong, and some of you that are twisted get some sort of perverse pleasure in abusing your little children. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. And in Colossians it says, lest they be discouraged. But here it says, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Notice there's no tyranny in the Bible. Because its morality is protecting all classes. Even though it is just said, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Then it says, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Beautiful. That is morality. There's no tyranny because the morality, the holiness and righteousness of God's word was written by God. Look at Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20. When you go out to buy something, you ought to buy it for the very lowest price possible, right? Whatever is fair. Watch this. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 14. Some of us men talked about this in the last few days. 2014. It is not. It is not, saith the buyer. But when he has gone his way, then he boasteth. Hey, have you ever seen anyone like this or have you ever done it yourself? You go to buy something. You're looking at a car. You walk around. You're pointing out to its owner. See the dent here? See the dent there? Look at the paints faded on the, 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 uh, the hood. Look, the upholstery's torn. You know, he's selling a, an 11-year-old car and you're pointing out the scratches that are on it. See that the tires are kind of worn. I'm going to have to replace them soon. This really is nothing but a pile of junk you're selling me. It is not, it is not, saith the buyer. Then you buy the car for half the price that it was listed for in the paper and you go home and you brag about it. Right. Oh, what have we just done? We have violated a standard of morality far superior to anything man's ever written. Right. And do you know how we give ourselves away? What are the words that usually come out of our mouths when we're telling someone, when we're making our boast, and we're bragging about it? I got to steal. steal. Yep. What a steal. You're admitting what you are, a thief. Amen. You ought to pay a fair price. I'm going to tell you something. Those people who think that they can get ahead by not paying a fair price, why are they always the ones behind? And the ones that are generous and always give extra, why are they the ones always ahead? Because the Bible says that's the way it is. There is that withholdeth more than is meat. The man who withholds and doesn't give generously, it tends to poverty. Then there's the man that scattereth, and it tends to riches. What wisdom, what morality. You don't, we call it Jewing someone down. That's because that's the character of those people. The Bible knows that. God said he would make their table, which was their banking tables, a snare to them. And they would be a byword in all generations. So we call it Jewing someone down, and then we go our way and we boast. What we've done is we've stolen from someone by not paying a fair price. That in other holy books, in the vast array of subjects that the Bible deals with. Look at chapter 30, Proverbs chapter 30. Here's some morality. Should children obey their parents? Yes. I think most men would say that even from natural reasoning, we all come into this world as little babies, and in order for a family to function, I mean, today they don't know that because they're all too educated, but most men understand that children need to obey parents. How far should children's honor of parents go? Look at the morality of the Bible, verse 17. Proverbs 30 and verse 17, The eye that mocketh at his father and despiseth to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pluck it out and the young eagles shall eat it. That is God's holiness. Look at the level that it elevates honoring parents. My parents are sitting here listening to me. They know that I always didn't obey this verse. They would tell me to do something and I would do this at times. Anybody ever roll their eyes at their parents? Wives do it at husbands sometimes, sometimes behind his back, sometimes to his face. Sometimes they slam the door or just walk away in a huff. It's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. God doesn't approve of it because his standard of morality is so high, it shows he wrote the Bible. Right. Because even those facial expressions, even if we go and do it, even if we go and do it, but we did that, we're showing disrespect, and God said, let the eagles eat it. 
the eye that rolls like that at one in authority over it. Look at, let's go back in that same chapter to verse 7. Look at this morality. Most holy books are either written to help men get rich or to help men get poor. <laughs> Catholic holy books are written to help men get poor. True. You know, to really be godly and to be holy, a true holy man, you have to take a vow of poverty and a vow of celibacy. You can't have a woman, you can't have anything. So you wander around in a brown robe, eat mush, and finger beads all day, and that makes you a holy man. Then there are other books that are written for how to be successful and to get ahead in the world and to get rich and to have more and more and more. And where does the Bible cut? Right between both extremes. Amen. Look at what the wise man wrote in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 7. He said, Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Yes. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. Amen. That is wisdom. Amen. That is true morality. We don't want to be rich. Riches are dangerous because riches will cause you to forget God and say, who is the Lord? It happened to Israel over and over again when he blessed them. But we don't want to be so poor either that we're tempted to steal. And we take the name of God in vain. What kind of a book would be written where neither poverty... Look at huge denomination called Catholicism rushes down the road to poverty, calling that holiness. Other denominations rush toward being rich, like the Mormons. And here we are in the middle because we have the Bible. And it says, don't give me poverty or riches. What holy balance that God has given. Right. Is there any higher morality than the Sermon on the Mount? If we go to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the commandment, thou shalt not kill. He knew what the Pharisees did with that commandment. Just because they hadn't literally stuck a knife into someone and let their warm blood run out, they were not guilty of the sixth commandment. So Jesus comes along and says, but I say unto you that if you are angry with a brother without a cause, you have violated the sixth commandment. When David wrote in Psalm 119 that your commandment is exceeding broad, this is the Lord Jesus Christ taking that little commandment. I've never killed anybody. Everyone in here is guilty of murder. Amen. Don't kid yourself. Right. It's not called kidding yourself in the Bible. It's called deceiving yourselves. Truth. Everyone in here has committed murder. And you do that when you're angry with a brother without a cause, when you're bitter with your brother. When you have not reconciled, when there is an offense between you and a brother, you are guilty of murder in the, in the standard of morality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He says, agree with thine adversary quickly. If you're at the altar and you remember anyone that has anything against you, it says, leave your gift there and go make peace with your brother. And then you're keeping the sixth commandment. Seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, I've never committed adultery. So Jesus comes along and says, If you've looked at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you have broken the seventh commandment. Right. Then he says, if you, if you have used divorce to get rid of one woman in order to get another woman, when you didn't have a grounds to get rid of that first one, you have broken the seventh commandment. And on and on he goes. And he gets so strict as he gets toward the end of Matthew chapter 5 that he tells us that if someone smites us on one cheek, turn to him the other cheek. It says, don't resist evil. That doesn't mean we don't go take up arms to protect our nation. It means that we don't take up revenge against our personal enemies. Right. And he concludes that fifth chapter of Matthew by saying, love your enemies. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Bless them that curse you. Yep. That is the standard of morality taught in the Bible. God wrote the Bible. Amen. Men don't think that way. Men don't operate that way. They're always trying to restrain commandments. And here Jesus Christ is opening them up to make them even broader so that they impact all of our lives. You know, it deserves a whole series, and whole series have been preached before in the Sermon on the Mount because it is so extensive. You look at all the almsgiving in chapters 6 and 7, almsgiving, prayer and fasting. How are they all to be done? In shows, according to the calendar so that everyone knows you're doing it, or in secret? 
Are you to be giving your alms so secretly that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand's doing? Amen. Most almsgiving is done so well that you can get yourself a brick. A brick put into a wall with your name on it. That's how secretly most givers give in our society. But Jesus taught a standard of morality so different. Left and right hand. When you're fasting, what should you do? Take an extra shower. Wash your face extra well. And make sure that you appear that you're cheerful in public, not like you're fasting. Most religions have their religion based upon public show, ceremonial function. And Jesus Christ cut through all that and showed a standard of morality that is so different. God wrote the Bible. No one, no one realizes the benefits of such secrecy in almsgiving, in prayer, and in fasting, except the God to whom the alms and the prayers and the fasts are made. And so this book was written by God, and we can see that from its morality. What does it tell us when we see a moat in our brother's eyes? It tells us to make sure that we're working on that beam that's in our own before, so that we can get it out of our eyes, so that we can see clearly to help our brother with his moat. On and on, Jesus went in the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most glorious sections of literature ever made. Of course it is. God wrote it. And it tells us a standard of holiness that is different from everything else. The examples that I've given you today are for this purpose. The foundation of our religion is the Bible. It's not enough that your grandma used a Bible, your parents used a Bible, and you were brought up in a Bible-believing home. You're assuming something that the Lord expects us to prove because he told us, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. We are Bible Christians. We follow Jesus Christ according to the Bible. Our religion is nothing more and it's nothing less. We don't care what denominations think about us. We don't care what seminaries say about weirdos like us. We want to follow the Bible and what it says about Jesus Christ. We believe Jesus Christ is all that the Bible says he is because... We believe the Bible was written by God. We believe the Bible tells us how we ought to meet and assemble and what we ought to do in a New Testament worship service. Right. Why do we believe that? Because we believe God wrote the Bible. Why do we train our children? Why do we love our wives? Why did I just teach what I did over the last two days about how we're to love our wives and how wives are to love their husbands? Why? Did I, why? Because God wrote the Bible and he told us all those things in the Bible. We must prove all things and realize that this book was given to us by God, and without it there would be no Christianity. We would know there was a creator God because we could look outside and see the beauty of his creation. We could look up in the sky, and the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God, but the heavens don't declare the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, sitting at the right hand of God right now with all principalities and powers being made subject unto him, ruling with a rod of iron and breaking the empires of this nation into the tiny little quilt work that they are right now is all revealed to us in this book. That Jesus Christ hung on the cross of Calvary and shed his precious blood and laid down his life for us so that we would not have to face the wrath of the everlasting God is all written in this book for us. And for us to show him how thankful we are, we come together tonight to celebrate around a simple table, not where we believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation, but where we remember his death until he comes. It's all in the Bible. Why do we do things the way we do? Because God wrote the Bible. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word for you to love his Bible and to submit to it. And brethren, my last point, I'll still tell you, my last point is, which is for a long ways away, the person of the book is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, search the scriptures. Once you know that they're written by God, search them, for they are they which testify of me. May Jesus Christ be ultimately (laughs) praised by all that we do.